Let's open up our Bibles to Galatians chapter 5 this morning as we continue in our journey through the book of Galatians together. Galatians chapter 5, this morning we're going to go from verse 1 down through verse 12 together. Galatians chapter 5, and let me begin reading here for us. It says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify to you, again, that every man who becomes circumcised, that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but faith working through love. You ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And Father, we just humbly ask in this moment for the help of your Holy Spirit. As we continue in our worship and opening the word of God together, we pray now that you would give us an ear to hear and a heart to receive what you would say to us through the word of God by your spirit's ministry. So we ask, Lord, speak to us now by the power and the person of your spirit, and we ask this together in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, the word liberty is defined as the state of being free from oppressive restrictions on one's way of life. The word freedom as well is defined as the power and the right to decide and do what you desire without any hindering or restraining ability to be able to choose yourself. The Bible is very clear to us that our Lord Jesus Christ came into this world to provide liberation from us, for us. Uh, He came to set us free. In fact, Jesus himself proclaimed, if the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. Now, when we talk about Jesus setting us free or giving to us liberation, we're not talking about being free to just be self-serving but free really from those things that would enslave us, those things that would keep us entangled in some form of bondage or slavery in order to be able to be free to live for the Lord, to be liberated that we can actually serve another, we can serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul's addressing in our text here, we'll see this time this morning, appreciating and maintaining the freedom that we have been given in a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and not entering back into forms of slavery, maybe that we once were in, but standing fast in the free and liberated condition that's been given to us. The backdrop, remember, Paul's been writing to the Galatian believers sort of this corrective letter, encouraging them to return to the truth in their relationship with Jesus Christ and the salvation that they experienced in him originally, where they were enjoying relationship freely with the Lord by his grace, not living by rules and regulations or restrictions over their lives, but in a relational way, enjoying a love relationship with Christ ruling on their heart, listening to the Holy Spirit, letting him guide and direct them from within. And he wants them to follow that law of liberty that rules over the heart where they could serve Christ out of their love for him and just listening to what the Holy Spirit is directing from the inside instead of just a checklist of little different rules and regulations that they might need to follow. So look with me in verse 1. Paul begins this section by saying now, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, And do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. So we notice here, as Paul comes to this point in the letter, he makes a declaration of how our Lord Jesus Christ has liberated us from slavery so that we now, in gratitude towards him as our liberator, the one who set us free, that we can now enjoy that, and that we must also, Paul says here in verse 1, guard against becoming enslaved again. 
If you're an underliner, you may want to underline those beautiful four words there in verse 1 where Paul makes this declaration to the Christian. These words, he says, Christ has made us free. That Christ has made us free. It indicates how at one time, obviously, we were not free. The very fact that he says Christ has made us free indicates quite clearly that at one time we were in bondage or some form of slavery. And yet, though we were in a condition of slavery, we have been liberated. Again, if we look at God's word as a whole, the Bible, God's word tells us that it were multiple ways that we actually were enslaved in our original condition from birth. That is prior to coming into the experience of salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ prior to the time of a spiritual conversion when we come to Jesus and we are saved and set free that the Bible teaches we actually were slaves in various different ways. For example, first of all, the Bible teaches that we were originally enslaved to Satan. Now, that may not be something that sounds appealing or maybe even digestible for some people to swallow, but yet it is a biblical truth. The Bible teaches in Ephesians chapter 2 regarding our past condition, it says this, you used to live in a way where you once followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, referring to Satan himself, the spiritual influence over the system of this world and the unsaved and the unconverted. He says, you used to once follow the ruler of the kingdom of the air. He calls him the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. He says, all of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, that is the sin nature, following its desires and thoughts. 1 John 5.19 tells us that we are now of God as Christians, but it says the whole world, that is the system of the world, everyone who's unconverted yet, lies under the sway or the control of the wicked one. So we were enslaved to Satan originally. We also secondarily were slaves to simply just the power of sin. That is the sinful nature of our flesh. We were enslaved to that. John chapter 8, Jesus declared, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. So Jesus himself, God in the flesh, declared that we as people originally from birth are actually slaves to our sin nature, that we're enslaved to the power that controls us of our sin nature. Romans 6 declares the same, saying that we should no longer be a slave to sin. So we're enslaved to Satan spiritually. A person is a slave to their own sin nature. We're also in bondage thirdly to the fear of death. Another form of slavery we often don't think about, but yet the Bible says in Hebrews 2, because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the son also became flesh and blood. Listen, for only as a human being could he die and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death and only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. So again, the Bible teaches another form of slavery that we are in originally is actually we're enslaved to the fear of dying. And every human being, I think to some degree, at some point in their life, has felt that fear, kind of that terror and that fear that enslaves a person, that they're terrified to die. They're afraid to die because they don't know what will happen after they die. And there are many people in the world today who are not in right relationship with God, who aren't followers of Jesus Christ, and those still in that condition, they're, in a sense, enslaved to the fear of death. They're terrified, they're panicked over the reality of their own mortality and what will happen after they die. One final way that we are slaves that we need to be liberated from is we're actually as well enslaved to the obligations of keeping the law of God, that is the Mosaic law. And that's really the point of the whole book of Galatians that we've been studying together, this letter, that our enslavement to the Mosaic law is sort of a form of religious bondage. 
Uh, it's something that Paul has been trying to emphasize. It's a bondage to keep all the requirements of the Mosaic law to try and be right with God and stay right with God. And it's actually a form of sort of religious enslavement to fear the punishment that if we break one of God's laws, that somehow we're going to suffer a great consequence for that. In Acts chapter 15, there at the Council of Jerusalem, it refers to how law-keeping was like putting a yoke on the neck of people that they were unable to bear. It was just a form of enslavement, and that's why they were fighting against it there within the early church, and it's why Paul writes this letter. But yet, though all those things truly control a person from birth, we're enslaved to Satan, we're slaves to the power of sin controlling our lives, we're enslaved to the fear of death, and even enslaved to the Mosaic law and all of its requirements, which we're unable to keep and live in bondage to, he says, yet all those things truly control a person from birth, Christ and his work, and then encountering him in salvation brings deliverance. It brings liberation. That's why Paul says, Christ has made us free. Christ has made us free and liberated us from those things that once ruled over our lives. And notice, we do not set ourselves free from any of those things that I mentioned are forms of slavery. But notice very clearly the text says Christ has made us free. It is not possible in human resolve or effort to set yourself free. We may think, oh, I can get free of this habit that's unhealthy and wrong and destructive in my life. I can get free from the fear of death, but listen, the reality is we are not able in self-resolve or human power to set ourselves free from these things that rule over us. We need to be liberated by someone who has greater power than we ourselves have. We need to be liberated by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior. It's Christ who makes us free and liberates the inward man. Again, John 8 is why Jesus declared that, saying of himself, if the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. That is, you'll be free for sure when the sun sets you free you can try and set yourself free think you're experiencing freedom and then find yourself again enslaved but if jesus christ by his power as the liberator of the souls of humanity sets you free by his miraculous power you're free indeed you are free for sure because it was a deliverance now that's important to realize for the believer because we need to know that a powerful liberation happened when we came to Christ as our Savior. He says to the Christian here in verse 1, Stand fast, therefore, in that liberty, that freedom you've been given, by which Christ, notice past tense, has made you free. It's very important for the believer to know that Jesus has already made us free. The question is, am I going to claim the freedom Christ has given to me? Am I going to live in that freedom and liberation or am I going to continue to live like a slave? The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 6, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your moral body that you should obey its lust and do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. Present yourselves to God being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness for sin shall not have dominion over you for you're not under law, but under grace. Again, the Bible declares you have been liberated and therefore it is your choice to live in that liberty and in that freedom. You know, I've read stories before of how originally uh, during the time of, you know, Abraham Lincoln and the Emancipation Proclamation, when the, the, the proclamation first went forth, that slaves were free and they were liberated. Again, understand that was a day where we didn't have uh, you know, social media and quick access to spread world, you know, the word all around the country very fast, that there were a good gap of time that existed for many people between the time when proclamation of freedom was given to them and their liberty was made available to them before people eventually knew and got word, oh, I'm free now? I don't have to live as a slave anymore? And so there were people for a time period that were still living as slaves when they were technically declared free, when they had been liberated by a ruler and given the right to freedom, and yet though they had the right to freedom, 
They were still living enslaved because they didn't know and understand yet their freedom. And it wasn't until they fully understood it, they could then act upon and enjoy the freedom given to them. That's true of a lot of people spiritually as Christians sometimes. Sometimes someone has been liberated by Christ. They have been made free when they came to Jesus Christ, but they don't act in faith upon the reality of the full deliverance and freedom Christ has given to them. Please know Christ has made you free. The Bible says sin doesn't have to have dominion over you any longer. You can live in the freedom of Christ and enjoy that. And we have to appreciate and maintain that position of liberty now. That's why Paul says in verse one there, stand fast in that liberty. You take your stand by faith, knowing you've been liberated from the control of those things. They don't have to rule you any longer. He says, appreciate the liberty Christ has given to you. Enjoy that freedom and by faith stand your ground in that position of liberation that Christ has given to you. Know the rights that you have as a citizen of heaven and that it gives to you freedom from the power of Satan and the power of sin and the power of death and even the power of having to live by the law of God rather than live by being led by the spirit. You know, if I can illustrate, it's in the same way of a person understanding their freedoms and rights as a U.S. citizen and understanding your rights as a citizen and the freedoms you have is important, is it not? Because that's what helps us as citizens maintain the experience of our freedom that we're entitled to. And understanding those freedoms is important to enjoying those freedoms and not having those freedoms taken away from you. Well, the same is true spiritually. We have to know the freedom we have in Christ spiritually. When you know that freedom, then you can act upon and enjoy that freedom as you stand fast in that position of deliverance and freedom given to you. And we have to guard against, Paul says here, verse one, the end of it, becoming entangled again with a yoke of bondage. So he says, don't let yourself become entangled again back into some form of slavery. It's interesting he uses the analogy there of a yoke. The yoke of bondage, he calls it. The yoke, remember, was that wooden harness that they would put on the animal's neck so that the one in control could steer the animal in the direction that he wanted the animal to go. So the wooden yoke basically took away the animal's ability to do what it pleased, and instead that wooden yoke basically was an implement that kept the animal under someone else's control and led the animal in a direction that someone else wanted it to go. So Paul says, don't allow yourself to be put into a yoke where something else is controlling you. Don't allow yourself to be put into a yoke of religious restrictions or rules or somebody coming along saying, no, listen, you have to follow these rituals or routines and you don't have the freedom to live for Christ and listen to the Lord yourself. He says, don't allow anyone to rob you of that by bringing you into some legalistic set of rules of spiritual life whereby you set aside liberty in the spirit and you find yourself controlled by other things. Now notice Paul's specific concern we see as he goes on in verse two is them becoming entangled again in the slavery of living under the heavy burden of keeping the standards of the Mosaic law. This is what these Judaizers, these teachers were trying to do, bring Christians back under the requirements of the Mosaic law that they had been liberated from. That's why Paul says, verse two, don't let yourself be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Verse two, he says, indeed, I, Paul, say to you, that if, notice, if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. Now understand, as Paul references being circumcised here, circumcision was not so much about the physical act of circumcision itself as much as it was about what circumcision represented. Circumcision to the Jewish people, understand, was a symbolic action that represented their way of life, their way of life of living under the covenant of the laws of God and following God, being given over to God, and ultimately became to them a, a symbolism in their minds as they progressed. It became a symbolism of living in covenant with God according to the Mosaic standards, and that's really what it began to represent to them. It wasn't so much the physical act as much as it represented a life dedicated to the standards of God's law. And it indicated that you believe that the way to stay right with God or become right with God originally was to adhere to his law 
and it came through your adherence to that. In essence, it spoke of your good works, that you maintain good works. Now, we know that's true. Again, Acts chapter 15, if you remember, the religious group that came with Paul and some of the other early Christian leaders that were trying to refute salvation by grace alone through faith and trust in Christ alone, they came saying, unless the people are circumcised, they cannot be saved. The idea is that they had to first become, in a sense, adherents of Judaism and the ways of the Mosaic law, and then only after they did that could they then become followers of Christ and experience salvation. And though the law was a tool God used to lead men to Christ, to help them in the process, when Christ came and fulfilled all things, Paul was trying to say, listen, that's not true. It is not necessary to adhere to the good works and the rituals and the regulations to become right with God. And Paul, remember, once being a very religious man himself, Paul was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Paul was a Jewish man. He loved the Jewish people. And yet he's the one saying here, understanding the deceptive nature of living by restrictions and rules and how that can sometimes blind a person to what it means to truly have personal relationship with God and to see that Jesus alone is God's means of salvation as the Savior to know Christ. That's why Paul strongly cautions in verse 2 saying, look, I indeed, Paul, He says, the one who kept the Mosaic law more strictly than anyone probably in Jewish history. Paul says, look, I value those things. I strictly maintain those things. But he says, I, Paul, tell you that if you now go and adhere yourself and put yourself back under those things, then he says, the danger is Christ, he says, is going to profit you nothing. Now, Paul's train of thought here is very interesting. He's saying if you submit to that way of spiritual life where you seek to earn your righteousness, to go back under rules and a checklist of regulations and spiritual requirements, he says the danger is that Christ himself is going to begin to profit you nothing. He's saying the problem is you will no longer see the value and the benefit of Jesus in your life the way that you properly should you will begin to find yourself losing value for the Lord Jesus and all that he did and what he supplies for you. And it will start to diminish your appreciation for the Lord. It will start to decrease your wonder and your awe of Jesus because he won't mean as much to you because you won't recognize how important he is if you're so concerned about keeping lists of rules and regulations spiritually. You know, if you just think of the flow of that, whenever a person realizes that they are helpless and a hopeless sinner before a holy God, and they have a sense of conviction that they need to be rescued from their sin, and they need to be spared from the punishment that their sin deserves, and you feel a sense of guilt for your sin, and you fear the judgment of God, and then you realize that Jesus, in his great love for you, stepped into this world took a body of flesh as a man, lived the righteous requirements of the law and fulfilled everything in a way that we never could and never sinned and never failed and provided the perfect sacrifice that's required to get into heaven and then stepped into our place to take the punishment that we deserve as the sinners and that Jesus alone can provide forgiveness of sins through his death upon the cross and his resurrection from the dead as the living, risen Savior, that Jesus alone can not only forgive our sin and pardon us, but Jesus gives us the gift of eternal life through his eternal life. He gives us the access to have relationship with God. And when you start to realize all of what Jesus did and provides and how he spared you and gave you relationship with God, what that does is you see how valuable Jesus is to you personally. And all of a sudden, you find yourself wondering at the great benefit that Christ brings to your life. And you find yourself trusting him with incredible appreciation. And Jesus is the most valuable thing because you appreciate him as your savior. You realize how profitable it is to you to now be in relationship with him. You realize how valuable he is to you as your savior and Lord. But when you turn away from that and towards self-righteous activity, thinking what you do or don't do in your religious checklist somehow makes you spiritual, 
the downside to that is the value of Jesus starts to diminish in your eyes. You start thinking more about your good works and your heart loses appreciation for the Lord Jesus Christ. And reverting back to those things results in a devaluation of how important Jesus is. And that's never a good thing. It will rob your appreciation of the Lord. That's why legalism is so dangerous to the Christian, because it causes us to reduce our desire to worship because we're not in awe and wonder of Christ like we should be because we've lost sense of how valuable and precious he is when we realized how wonderful he was from the start. Your heart will start to grow cold. And this is what Paul's concerned about. He says, if you do that, Christ will profit you nothing. He says, verse three, and I testify again to every man, he says, who becomes circumcised, going back under the Mosaic law, that he becomes a debtor to keep the whole law. Now, Paul's talked about this before, how a life of religious law-keeping, or we might call it legalism, puts a burden upon your spiritual life that is unbearable to maintain. He says, look, if you decide to live according to the Mosaic law and how you relate to God, then according to the Mosaic law, you can't just keep parts of the Mosaic law, you have to keep the entire thing. The hundreds and hundreds of commands All of it must be maintained, and it has to be maintained with absolute perfection. It doesn't allow obeying some things and not adhering to other things. It requires perfect, complete, 100% adherence and obedience, or you're guilty of everything, and you deserve the punishment. James 2 says, for whoever keeps the whole law and stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Now, I don't know about you, read the Old Testament and you tell me who can keep all of those rules, all of those requirements, who can perfectly maintain every restriction and follow every command absolutely perfectly. Absolutely no one can. That's setting yourself up to a standard of conduct that you'll never be able to keep. And it will nothing more than cause you to always feel guilty to constantly feel condemned and fear God's judgment continually. So Paul says, verse 4, those who are wrongly following that pattern of spiritual life, if they've regressed back into it, he says, this is what's happened. Look what he says, verse 4. He says, you've become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified, made right by the law. You have fallen from grace. So Paul here wants to show what's transpired in those who've made this mistake. When Christians lapse into a form of legalistic spiritual living, he says what has happened is two things. First of all, that believer has become disconnected or they've somewhat become distant from a close relationship with Jesus. Notice who says verse 4, he says, you become estranged from Christ. The word estranged means to no longer be close or affectionate with someone. It speaks of being alienated relationally. It speaks of once having a very close relationship and yet something has now come in the middle and has brought separation and cut off that prior healthy relationship. He says such a person has lost relational connection to the person of the Lord Jesus. The individual who's interested in living in a legalistic manner has basically began to kind of lose meaningful relationship of just dependence upon the power of the Lord Jesus and walking in closeness with him. They've let things come in between their relationship and drifted into an unhealthy spiritual condition. They've misplaced their devotion upon doing things rather than having their devotion just in living in a love relationship with the person of the Lord Jesus. It's caused them to kind of lose that first love condition of when they first met the Lord. And we know what that's like, those of us, when we first came to the Lord Jesus, and it was just it was just all about loving Jesus, and we so appreciated him, he was so valuable to us, look, let me ask today, is it possible that you've become estranged from Christ? Is it possible in your spiritual life, do some inventory that maybe recently you've, you've kind of become estranged from Jesus a little bit and some things have kind of come in and robbed you from that intimacy and that closeness relationally? 
Paul says, be careful of that. The second thing he mentions as an unfortunate byproduct of this, he says, is verse 4 also that these people had lost their understanding of grace. You see what he says? He says, you have fallen from grace. You've fallen from grace. That is, they lost their footing in their prior stand of a position of grace. That is, when they understood that salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, not of works, that it was a gift of God. They had become tripped up in regards to that spiritual perspective and their walk. Romans 5 says, Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access by faith into this, notice, grace in which we stand. That is, the Christian, when they come to the Lord Jesus Christ, they understand that they have a position where they've gained access to God by faith, and Paul says, Romans 5, into the grace in which we now stand. They understand, I have a position with God relationally by grace. Grace because of the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the proper stand spiritually of someone in right relationship with God. But when a person becomes legalistic, they basically have lost perspective of their standing in grace. And they've kind of drifted away from that and tripped up and fallen away from that utter reliance of, upon grace alone. Upon Ephesians 2, 8, 9, where it says, By grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God and not of works. That's why the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 13, 9, Don't be carried away with various and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace. Hey, again, let me ask right now, is it possible you have stumbled in your spiritual perspective recently where maybe somehow you began to kind of lose your grasp on the wonder of the grace of God and you've become a little bit too legalistic and sort of lost sight of the importance and the value of God's grace that at one time you used to wonder over the amazing grace of God. And it would blow your mind and it would illuminate your heart and it would cause you to have such love towards Jesus because when you just thought about the incredible grace of God, it just prompted you to want to worship the Lord and to lift your heart towards Him. That early on, you know, the words of that great hymn meant so much to you, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And at one time, that song and the words of that, that was our heartbeat. The grace of God was so important, but yet sometimes we can kind of fall away from that valuation and appreciation of grace. And Paul says, this is what was happening to these believers here. He says, the proper stand of the believer, verse 5, is this, that we, through the Spirit, should eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. So Paul here describes through reliance upon the work of God's Spirit that we await the future promise of glory. When he says there that we eagerly wait, verse 5, for the hope of righteousness, the hope of righteousness there, he's referring to our eternal destiny in heaven, the righteous dwelling place where God himself is at. That by faith, we trust, first of all, that we have been made righteous by Christ's work, that when we put our trust in Jesus Christ and his death for our sins upon the cross and his resurrection from the dead, that the Bible teaches we are made right with God. That is, God gives to us the righteousness of Christ so that in our standing by grace, we have a standing of being righteous before God because Jesus gives to us his righteousness. And we stand in righteousness and we know we're therefore acceptable to God through Christ. And heaven, as I said, is the righteous eternal dwelling place of God. And so we have a hope that one day, because we are righteous through our faith, trusting in what Christ did for us, that we, because we're righteous through Christ, are going to have the access 
access and we have full hope and assurance that we're going to have the hope of entering into the righteous dwelling place of God where God himself and his son Jesus Christ are at and we can confidently have our hope in heaven and eagerly wait for that, Paul says. Through the Spirit, we are eagerly awaiting that sphere of righteousness. And the way we maintain that hope of staying eager for heaven's promise, Paul says in verse 5, is through the power of the Spirit, helping us to eagerly keep waiting for that hope of righteousness. That's how we persevere in hopefulness, through the Spirit, by trusting His help. Romans 8 says that we were saved in this hope But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he does not see? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. And likewise, it's the Spirit who helps us in our weaknesses. Look, today, again, maybe things going on in your life and what's taking place has kind of been diminishing your hope. Maybe you've been losing your heavenly perspective and you need a restoration that there is hope beyond this world. Can I encourage you? Ask the Lord to fill you afresh with his spirit because as the spirit floods through your life once again in a fresh way, hope will arise within your heart. The Bible tells us in Romans 15, may the God of hope fill you with joy and peace in believing, listen, that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. That is where hope comes from, from the God of hope. It is the God of hope that by the power of His Spirit gives us abounding, abundant hope in our heart to realize, yes, this world is hard, but I'm hoping in something beyond this world. There is a time coming when I can be free from the difficulties of this sinful, fallen world, and I eagerly hope for the place of righteousness where everything is right. That's the idea where everything is finally right and there's no more sorrow or sickness or struggles or sin or suffering because it's an eager hope for that place of righteousness. That's what we long for by the Spirit, Paul says. Verse 6, he says, For in Christ Jesus, again, notice that's a relational term, those in a relationship with Christ Jesus, being married to him, he says, those in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor circumcision avails anything. So Paul says, for those in a relationship with Christ, we realize it's not the issue of are you Jew or are you Gentile, that is anyone non-Jewish. It's not the issue of are you someone who was raised with keeping the Mosaic law or were you a Gentile person who never knew anything about the Mosaic law and the other cultures of the world. He says that doesn't avail anything. It's not a matter of what are your cultural convictions that you hold to. He says these may differ from person to person, but none of those things ultimately amount to anything spiritually, eternally. What matters, he says there, what matters most is faith working through love. This is what matters to God. Where is our faith at and is our faith genuine and what does our faith produce? Because, see, the reality is this, folks, true faith always works. We're not saved by works, but true faith works. It will show itself in works. That will be the byproduct. The Bible teaches that what we believe affects our behavior. Faith, genuine faith, is measurable because it influences a person's life. And one of the ways it's measurable is genuine faith in Christ will be revealed by the outworking of love as the fruit of our faith and trust in Christ coming forth from our life. When a person has encountered God, the fruit of that genuine faith and encounter with God will be the outworking of love in two ways. There will be an evident love for the Lord. When you have genuine faith in Christ, you will have a very clear evidence of love for the Lord Jesus Christ. That faith will be working through love. Peter writing in his letter, 1 Peter 1.8, speaking to believers about Jesus, declared this. He says of Jesus, though you've not seen him, yet you love him. And even though you don't see him now, yet you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. The person with genuine faith in Christ will have an outworking of great love for the Lord. Somebody may say, well, I have faith in Jesus Christ. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Well, one of the ways that will be seen as genuine from God's perspective and that we can tell if it's genuine is they will begin to greatly love the Lord. That love for the Lord will be a genuine indication of their faith in the Lord. 
And also, there'll be an outworking of greater love for others. Because as we walk with Christ and trust him, we begin to experience his love towards other people, towards the way that he would love people as well. Philippians 1 says, I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. So you can't walk with the Lord of love and not start to have his love and affection in your heart coming forth towards other people. It will be the outworking of your faith, faith working through love. Paul says, verse 7, notice, you ran well... Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion, he says, does not come from him who calls you. So notice, verse 7, Paul says, You ran well. At one time, you were running the race well, Paul says. You were, you were staying on track. You were in the right lane. But then he says, the question is, Who hindered you from obeying the truth? He's identifying that this spiritual diversion where they were persuaded to move away from the truth, came from some hindrance, notice, of somebody influencing them. You see what he's saying there? He says, who hindered you? He doesn't say what hindered you. He says, who hindered you? Of course, who hindered them to pull them away from the truth was the false teachers. They had hindered them by their persuasion of wrong ideas they proposed. They came in with an unhealthy influence, began kind of propagating their ideas among the Christians and you know, misguiding people among the church, causing vulnerable believers who weren't rooted in the truth to start to believe their wrong ideas. And so they persuaded people away from the truth into error. Apparently, these false teachers must have been very persuasive speakers in their presentation because Paul says there, he says, this persuasion does not come from him, that's Jesus, who called you to follow him. So apparently these false teachers were very persuasive in their presentation. Maybe they were very dynamic as communicators. They were very charismatic. They were skilled at getting people excited. And their presentation caused people to just buy in and believe, wow, that sounds exciting. They seem important. And what they're saying seems like something we should do. Yet the problem was, though they were very persuasive, they were presenting error. What they were communicating was not the truth. In fact, it actually was pulling people away from Scripture itself. That's why Paul's arguing in verse 8. Look at it. He says, this persuasion it does not come from him who calls you. Paul is saying there, please hear my heart, he says, the persuasion of what you feel inclined to do, it's not from the Lord. You may feel inclined to follow that persuasion, but he says that's not the voice of the Lord. See, Paul knew enough to understand these believers had heard the Lord's voice at one time. And they chose to follow Jesus when they heard the voice of the Lord by the Spirit saying, follow me. They had heard the voice of the Lord and they had been persuaded by the Lord Jesus himself to follow him when he called them. But Paul says this persuasion that you're now hearing in your minds to do certain things, he says that persuasion, it's not from the Lord. It is not from the Lord. Now, by way of application, I think it's important that we remember, first of all, that it is possible for people to come into our lives at times in such a way where they can become, as Paul references here, a hindrance. People can come into our lives, as people came in among the Galatian believers, and they can actually become a hindrance to our spiritual life. You know, maybe perhaps you were running the race well spiritually, and then someone kind of came in and joined your lane, and now that person has actually hindered your spiritual life. Be aware of that. People can come in and hinder our spiritual lives. If that's happened, you might want to reevaluate how that has caused you to get off track and do what's necessary to not let that person be a hindrance to your spiritual life. And be careful, like these believers be careful you don't ever let the ideas of people or let the ideals of false teachers, however they represent themselves, hinder you from obeying the truth of God's Spirit. And most importantly, don't ever let them hinder you from obeying the truth of God's written word. You check the Bible. 
I don't care what the titles are after their name or, you know, they have a grand TV show and a great following and have written 50 bestseller books. If what they're saying does not line up with the truth of the word of God, that persuasion does not come from God. Don't listen to it. Don't let it misguide you. You know, sometimes, honestly, we can find ourselves feeling persuaded to do something and we have to be very discerning because sometimes, I'll be the first to admit, I can have strong thoughts or strong feelings to act in some way and I have to recognize that though I may have a strong persuasion by feeling or thought to act in some way, maybe discernment tells me that persuasion, however, is not from the Lord. Maybe it's the source of the wisdom of the world, the ideals I've heard about or see others following. Maybe it's just the ideas of my own flesh. Maybe it's just the lie of the devil who's trying to deceive and misguide me. And we have to use discernment as God's people. We are called to follow Jesus, to listen to the voice of the Lord. You know, I remember a time in my life, honestly, very early on when we first came here to New Jersey to plant the church here. And in the early days, I forget exactly what was transpiring, but I found myself very, very discouraged at a particular point in time and was just really struggling with what was going on and found myself, honestly, it wasn't the first time, but one of those times where I was very close to just kind of, I can't do it, Lord, I give up, throw in the towel. And I just went somewhere and I just started reading and I started reading. And then ultimately I found myself in this very text and at this very verse Whereas I was ready to just, in discouragement, cast everything aside. And I read verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 8. Tony, this persuasion does not come from him who calls you. The persuasion that you're feeling to want to quit, to give up, that's not from the Lord who called you. And you know, I don't know. Perhaps this verse is a caution for you today. Maybe you're feeling very persuaded to do something. And maybe the voice of the Lord would say to you, that persuasion... It's not from the Lord. Don't listen to it. Don't be persuaded by the feelings in your flesh or what others are saying. You follow the voice of the Lord. That's crucial. Paul says, verse 9, beware because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Again, he warns just a little false teaching, a little error if it's tolerated, can permeate and spread and bring great defilement to a whole life or to an entire church. Leaven in the Bible speaks of that little part of the yeast that was put into the lump of dough that would permeate and spread and cause the dough to rise from its influence. And it's used, leaven, symbolically in the Bible to speak of destructive influences to the spiritual life. It's used of false teaching, that it's like leaven, it can spread and permeate and influence to a great degree in its defilement. It's used of sin, that sin is like leaven, a little bit of sin. It can gradually begin to spread, and very soon it takes over an entire life. And so we have to be careful with unhealthy influences. Look, it only takes a little allowance for some bad or defiled or unhealthy thing, whether it's sin or a little bit of wrong doctrine, and soon and very soon it will spread and it can infect everything. It can defile your whole life. A little compromise of sin can become a life that comes completely shipwrecked and overwhelmed as that spreads and takes control of your entire life. Be careful. A little bit of leaven has to be purged quickly. When you know there's an unhealthy influence in your life, don't play with it. Purge out that influence quickly before it spreads and takes over and increases in its defilement. That's why Paul, no doubt because of the leaven of this false teaching, concludes with such strong language here in verses 10 through 12. Look how he wraps up this section. He says, I have confidence in you and the Lord that you'll have no other mind, but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. He then says, verse 12, I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. Notice the exclamation point. Paul says a few things here. First of all, he says, verse 10, I have confidence that you believers there in Galatia have the spirit of the Lord. You have the word of God that I've pointed out the truth to you, he says, and that you are going to have no longer an erroneous mindset, but that you're going to choose to embrace the truth instead. He also says to them as well there in verse 11, look, 
I want to assure you, despite what anyone's saying, he says, I no longer subscribe to being right with God through circumcision and the Mosaic law. He says, if that was the case, why am I suffering such persecution and mockery? The reason Paul was suffering persecution and mockery, because he was preaching the offense of the cross, that only through Christ alone could someone be right with God and be saved. And that's no doubt why Paul speaks sort of this word of judgment towards the destructive false teachers. See what he says at the end of verse 10? He says, May he who's troubling you bear his own judgment, whoever he is. See, Paul understood that God as a father does not take too kindly to people kidnapping his children or misguiding his children. That's why perhaps Paul uses the strong statement in verse 12 where he says, I could wish those who are troubling you would even cut themselves off. Now, Paul's using a play on words here. What were they endorsing? Circumcision. And Paul says, I wish, honestly, that they wouldn't just subscribe to circumcision. He says, honestly, I wish they would go all the way and castrate themselves altogether. Now, ouch, that's pretty strong language. And Paul's not just saying that to be harsh in his punishment. What Paul is saying is, look, when a person is castrated, they no longer can reproduce anymore. When a person has been castrated, it cuts off their influence completely. And Paul's saying, I wish honestly that these false teachers would completely have their influence cut off altogether because he knew how dangerous what they were promoting was. He knew that what they were promoting, sadly, could lead religious people who want to live by good works to ultimately go to hell because they would religiously be deceived thinking that their religion was good enough and that their adherence to good works was good enough, and they would deceptively be blinded to their true need of salvation through faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul knew that the legalism of these false teachers would rob Christians of a fruitful spiritual life that Jesus intends for them. You know, that is why Paul says in verse 1, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty in which Christ has made you free. Don't be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. You know, in the days of Jesus, the religious leaders were putting heavy bondage upon people with their requirements and their rituals, and it was becoming difficult to worship and serve God. And that's when Jesus there said in Matthew chapter 11, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened. He said, I'll give you rest for your soul. And he said, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And you'll find rest in coming to me. That is rest from trying to work constantly to be right with God and rest in the freedom of just a love relationship with Jesus Christ. How glorious to enjoy the liberty of just a loving walk with Jesus. Simple faith in him, loving Jesus, enjoying his love, and letting him lead your life as the Lord. Would you? 